Good morning. You're listening to MEF Century Radio on 860 AM WWDB. This is Matt Bennett, guest hosting today for Greg Roman, as he's off today in D.C. for the Middle East Forum, promoting American interest in the Middle East and protecting Western values at home. We have an interesting show planned for you this morning. We'll be speaking with E.J. Kimball, the director of the Forum's Israel Victory Project. We'll also hear from Sam Westrop, director of the Forum's Islamist Watch Project, and Winfield Myers, director of the Forum's Campus Watch Project. If you have any questions during the program today for me or any of our guests, you can email them to info at meforum.org, and we'll answer them live on the air. Again, you can email your questions to info at M-E-F-O-R-U-M dot O-R-G, and we'll answer them today live on the air. Before we speak to our guests, first let's take a look at today's headlines coming out of the Middle East. If you haven't been paying much attention lately to Turkey, you should be. Um, being reported today by Al Jazeera, uh, Turkey court upholds life sentences for prominent journalists. The Turkish court has upheld the sentences for... Emmet Altan and Mehmet Altan and Nazli Ilicek and three others on charges of aiding plotters of a failed military coup in 2016, according to local media. The journalists who were originally sentenced in February were previously sentenced to life in prison for alleged links to a network of U.S.-based religious leader and businessman, Fethullah Gulen, accused by Ankara of orchestrating the coup attempt. They appealed to a high court for their release, but Istanbul's second appeals court upheld the sentence on Thursday. Mehmet Altan was later released from prison in June, but his sentence was also upheld on Tuesday after a penal court rejected the constitutional court's request for his release. All six are serving aggravated life sentences, which means they are not eligible for parole and cannot be included in future amnesty decisions. The Turkish government has been carrying out these purges and arrests that affected hundreds of thousands of people in the country after the 2016 coup attempt that killed hundreds, including the plotters and wounded hundreds more. The government says the purges and detentions are legitimate, aiming at removing Gulen supporters from state institutions and other parts of society. I, however, and other uh, my colleagues at the Middle East Forum are skeptical. Uh, for those listeners out there who might remember the Middle East Forum hosted the NATO Parliamentary Assembly last year, during which members of the Turkish delegation rose up and left the event in anger as we gave the stage to Emery Çelik, who Ankara again accuses of being a part of a movement which seeks to overthrow the government. With these actions in Turkey, it comes as no surprise that the next headline coming out of the Middle East is the European Parliament cuts 70 million dollars, 70 million euros, sorry, in aid to Turkey as they voted to cut the financial support due to concerns over human rights and rule of law in the country. The motion was passed in the European Union's legislature on Thursday with 544 members of the parliament voting in favor of cutting and funding, while 28 were against it and 74 abstained. The so-called pre-accession funds are intended to help Turkey as it works toward becoming a member of the bloc, but they were cut as conditions to approve the rule of law were not met, said the statement from the European Parliament. The aid was to be pulled out on the condition that Turkey makes improvements with regard to the rule of law, democracy, human rights, and freedom of the press. The European Commission said in April that the country has been significantly moving away from the European Union in these areas. The money will go back into the European Neighborhood Instrument, which is a fund for political, economic, and social reforms in states outside of the EU. Uh, 
Payments pledged to Turkey in order to assist the country in hosting millions of Syrian refugees are not affected by Tuesday's decision. So it seems the European Commission is taking steps in the right direction, but will it be enough? And finally, also interesting coming out of Turkey, is news that they've detained more than 200 people for illicit money transfers. A recent investigation by Turkish police have resulted in the detaining of 200 people in a major nationwide crackdown on illicit money transfers to individuals of Iranian origin living in the United States. An Istanbul court issued the arrest warrants for 417 suspects and rounded up 216 of them on Tuesday nationwide in a nationwide operation that was carried out in 40 cities. The suspects are facing charges including criminal conspiracy and violating measures to prevent terrorism financing. There are no further details on who the suspects are. The investigation found that from the beginning of 2017, 2.4 billion lira, that's $400 million U.S., was transferred from Turkey to a total of 28,000 bank accounts abroad from several banks. It added 28,000 separate bank accounts. Those conducting the money transfers earned commissions. Citing the investigation, Andalou said while the large majority of the receipts of the funds were people of Iranian origin living in the U.S., the total numbers are uncertain. There were no further details on who these individuals were and if the transfers had an overall aim, but the arrests come as the U.S. is in the process of reimposing sanctions on Iran after Washington pulled out of the 2015 international deal limiting the nation's nuclear program, including Iran's ability to use the international financial system and export oil. So coming out of Turkey today, we see some really good news, I think, by the European Commission cutting funding, but at the same time, funding will remain for the Syrian refugees. Um, So if you're out there, please put Turkey at the top of your Google News Feed to keep up to date with the most recent activities. In other news, the U.S. is pulling four Patriot missiles Patriot Missile Systems out of Jordan, Kuwait, and Bahrain next month in a realignment of forces and capabilities as the military steps up its focus on on threats from China and Russia. According to multiple senior military officials, the relocation of the systems out of the Middle East, which had not been previously disclosed, is one of the most tangible signs of the Pentagon's new focus on threats from Russia and China and away from the long-running conflicts in the Middle East and Afghanistan. In other news, Saudi Foreign, Saudi Foreign Minister Adel Al-Jabir said on Wednesday night at the Council of Foreign Relations that Riyadh demands an apology from Canada for calling for the release of Saudi women's rights activists and that Canada must stop treating the kingdom like, quote, a banana republic if it wants to resolve the ongoing diplomatic dispute. Foreign Minister Adel Al-Jabir said, it's very easy to fix, apologize, and say you made a mistake. The Palestinian refugee agency UNRWA on Thursday received pledges of $118 million from donor countries to help it overcome the, quote, crisis triggered by U.S. funding cuts, Jordan's foreign minister said. Germany, Sweden, the European Union, Turkey, and Japan were among the countries that came forward with extra funds for UNRWA during a meeting held on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. And we hope to talk to EJ later on today about that and also about The next headline that we see of UNRWA withdrawing some of its international staff from the Gaza Strip on Monday, saying it was concerned for their safety. 
Quote, Earlier today, a number of staff were harassed and prevented from carrying out their duties by individuals protesting recent measures resulting from UNRWA's challenging financial situation, the statement said. Anger has mounted in Gaza over the past few weeks among Palestinian employees of UNRWA. Facing a financial crisis, the organization has had to cut jobs in Gaza, sparking strikes and protests. A source in Gaza said 13 international staffers were withdrawn, while six remain in the Strip. Saudi Arabia's public prosecutor has charged a man identified by activists as a prominent economist who once criticized plans to float shares of Saudi Aramco with joining a terrorist organization and meeting with foreign diplomats. Local media, including Arabic-language newspaper Okaz, reported on Monday that the accusations include membership of the banned Muslim Brotherhood as well as communicating with neighboring Qatar and inciting protests inside Saudi Arabia. The reports did not name the suspect, but a personal friend, London-based Saudi rights group ALQST, and a network of activists dedicated to monitoring and documenting people they described as prisoners of conscience, identified him as Assam al-Zamil, who has been detained since September of 2017. So I want to shift for a minute back to the Middle East Forum and the work that we are doing uh, before we... Uh, go to our commercial break, and then come back and speak with our project directors. If you're a first-time listener or if you're new to the work of the Middle East Forum, uh, we have five key projects that have been in place, some of them for decades, and they include Campus Watch, Islamist Watch, the Israel Victory Project, the Washington Project, and the Middle East Forum Education Fund, which distributes several million dollars to over 75 groups around the United States and the world. In addition, the forum maintains a vibrant writing fellows program consisting of over 20 fellows around the world who write on everything from economics in the Middle East to Islamism in the United States. Most recent developments at the forum include the launching of the counter-Islamist grid, which will be headed by Kyle Scheidler as well as the newest appointee for the forum's Israel Victory operations in Israel, Danny Seaman. And we congratulate them both on their appointments and welcome them to the forum. Turning back to news, we look at something unusual and quite disturbing in Malaysia. We see Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed in a statement, described Jews as hook-nosed and blamed them for creating the troubles in the Middle East in an interview on BBC's Hard Talk. Quote, if you're going to be truthful, the problem in the Middle East began with the creation of Israel. That is the truth, but I cannot say that. Mahathir also challenged historical accounts that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, saying the figure was four million. Last week, when addressing the UN General Assembly in New York, Mahathir said, the world rewards Israel for breaking international laws and committing acts of terrorism against Palestinians. I doubt tourism to Malaysia will spike from Israel anytime soon. In Iraq, we have the parliament electing to vote Barim Saleh of the PUK to be president by 219 votes to 22. Saleh was part of the interim government installed by the U.S. following the 2003 invasion. He went on to become Deputy Prime Minister under Nouri Maliki and also served as Prime Minister in the Iraq-Kurdistan regional government. However, 
KDP leader Masoud Barzani said his party rejected the parliamentary vote as there should have been a single Kurdish candidate for the presidency and that the candidate should have come from the KDP because it is the largest Kurdish party. While Barzani was the architect of last year's referendum on independence for Iraqi Kurdistan, Mr. Saleh today promised to, quote, safeguard Iraq's unity. Iraq's parliament postponed a vote on Monday to name a president because the main Kurdish parties who were supposed to present the candidate could not overcome differences. Parliament Speaker Mohammed al-Albuzi said the vote would be delayed until Tuesday because of a lack of a quorum. Under Iraq's constitution, the new president would have 15 days to task the largest parliamentary bloc's nominee with forming a government. The prime minister-designate would have 30 days to form a cabinet and then present it to parliament for approval. Lawmakers said the dominant Kurdish parties the Kurdistan Democratic Party, and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan were unable to iron out differences and agree on a candidate. The two sides competed in a parliamentary election in their semi-autonomous region in northern Iraq on Sunday. Allegations of fraud have created tensions, and results have not been announced. After the break, we'll hear from E.J. Kimball, the director of the Israel Victory Project. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, We always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back. You're listening to MEF Century Radio, WWDB 860 AM. We have with us this morning E.J. Kimball. E.J. is the director of the Middle East Forum's Israel Victory Project. He's a foreign policy and national security consultant with over 10 years of experience working in Washington, D.C. He most recently served as the executive director of the Israel Allies Foundation. Previously served as Foreign Policy Counsel to Representative Sue Myrick, Staff Director of the Congressional Anti-Terrorism Caucus, and Director of Government Relations for George Scientific Corporation. He graduated from Boston University and has a master's degree from the American University School of International Service. EJ, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm doing well. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. So we have a lot of rumors circulating recently about Trump's um, imminent 
announcement or peace plan that's currently in the works. Different news sources are reporting what we can expect. Is he going to appease the Palestinians since he's rewarded Israel? Do you have any uh, insider information that you can uh, reveal to our listeners today? Well, you know, obviously uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this peace plan for some time now. There's been rumors of its impending release uh, repeatedly, and it, it seems to keep being postponed as uh, um, I think as circumstances have been dictating. Uh, if you're if you look at what happened last week over at the UN General Assembly um, uh, between the you know President Trump's speech didn't really touch on this, but after his meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu, there was uh, some some discussion with the press about the peace plan and and President Trump made a reference to what he thinks is the best way forward, which would be two states. But, you know, people got very excited that he was now endorsing a two-state solution, uh, which he clarified afterwards to say that, you know, still this is what the parties need to decide. It's not up to him. He happens to think that's the best way forward, but it's, it's ultimately up to the parties. I don't believe that there will be so much of a pressure on Israel um, I think the framework that, you know, I would figure at some point will will be uh, will be released will include some sort of recognition of part of Jerusalem as the capital, uh, not so much a U.S. Um, recognition of it, but, you know, laying out some principles that should form the basis of an agreement. Uh, but at the moment, and I think part of the reason, big re- two big reasons why I think this has been postponed. Number one is the, um, I don't know if you exact word to use, but let's say intransigence of the Palestinian Authority and uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his complete rejection of any talks with the United States involved, any talks with Israel, uh, his complete dismissal of any sort of a proposal from the U.S. that would not give the Palestinians 100% of what they want. So with that sort of an attitude, anything that the administration puts forward is is dead on arrival, um, which I don't think would necessarily stop them. But the challenge, the second challenge that I find in this is the the focus that's been placed on dealing with Iran and the uh, um, alliance, if you will, that's been formed between Israel and these Arab countries. If there's some sort of a peace proposal put out there uh, to deal with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that the Palestinians dismiss, it's going to put the Arab countries in a tough spot because endorsing it won't help because it's not going to convince the Palestinians to play ball. And rejecting it or or bringing this into the equation can only cause uh, challenges for this alliance with Israel to deal with Iran. So, you know, there's there's lots of rumors out there about the deal, what's going to be, what the proposal will, will have in it. Uh, I don't anticipate it coming out at the moment. I think uh, if the Palestinian side finally decides to engage, then I think it will be released and form the basis of talks. But uh, at the moment, I don't think there's any rush from the administration to put something out that seems to not have the ability to move move the needle. Thank you. So for the, for our listeners out there who are either joining us for the first time or perhaps they're not too familiar with 
the Israel Victory Project. Can you talk a little bit about the work that is being done in Washington, how it relates to um, the policies that we see being put forth by the Trump administration and um, towards the Middle East in general, and what effects of your work and of the work of the Israel Victory Project um, can we see or might um, might we see evident in uh, in some recent activities? Sure. So the Israel Victory Project uh, seeks to create a, a new paradigm to look at the conflict. So if you you know think about Oslo, the Oslo Accords, which uh, uh, we just marked the 25th anniversary of, of that famous handshake on the White House lawn, uh, the Oslo Accords set you know a, a path of direct negotiations to uh, to settle the conflict, and it turned into a uh, a framework that promoted a two-state solution, uh, state of Israel, a state of Palestine living side by side, um, which was not what was originally set out uh, from the Israeli side, but that's what it eventually turned into. And, and of course, you know, the idea of uh, a win-win sounds great, um, but what's happened and what was known shortly after the signing of Oslo was the Palestinian side had not actually accepted the right of Israel to exist. And that is what's necessary to actually end the war. There's, you know, this, this war that's been going on for 70 years, the Palestinian side still believes that they can ultimately destroy uh, the Jewish state, drive the Jews into the sea and take all of the land, as they call it, the land of Palestine. So the Israel Victory Project says, look, we got to take a step back here. We're trying to force negotiations to end a war. And historically, that's just not how it works. Historically, wars end when one side wins, but more importantly, they win because the other side accepts that it that it's lost, that it cannot achieve its its uh, objective. Once that happens, then you can sit and negotiate. Right now, Israel can't sit and negotiate their right to exist. That's what they've been fighting a war about. And until the Palestinians accept that, there's nothing to, to talk about. So the, the Victory Project seeks to focus on this framework in looking at the, at the conflict. So now, you know, that's sort of the, the general idea. You know, on the Israeli side, it's to get the Israeli government eventually to adopt victory as their policy. And on the U.S. side, to place the onus on the Palestinians for their rejectionism of the Jewish state and to take actions uh, to take action, take action, um, 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 uh, Palestinians know that we're not going to play the same sort of game where they sit there, they lie, they, you know, incite to violence, promote terrorism. And at the same time, the U.S. turns over, you know, millions and millions of U.S. taxpayer dollars. So, 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 you know, so, yeah. so the work you've been doing in, in D.C. and abroad and beyond um, recently, I think, was um, – most easily summed up by the U.N. Special Reporter Richard Falk, and he wrote, Consider the steps taken by the U.S. government, and a pattern emerges that seems to be only comprehensible as seeking the implementation of the Victory Caucus. Uh, Robert Malley, a former uh, senior White House official under Presidents Clinton and Obama, and Aaron David Miller, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process negotiator under Clinton, wrote in The Atlantic that boiled down to its essence, quote, the administration's message to the Palestinians seems to be, you've lost. Now, if we look to, to, to Dr. Pipes, Dr. Daniel Pipes, the president of the Middle East Forum, his article and commentary that he penned uh, um, over two years ago, 
He pointed out some, or he recommended or suggested some specific things which could be done. Um, and if we can fast forward two years, I just want to go through the list so our listeners could uh, could note um, what what has been accomplished and what hasn't. So uh, the first he said was to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, and uh, if you could tell us uh, when that took place and how it occurred, we'll, we'll go down the list so we could itemize it for our listeners. Sure. Well, uh, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel took place in December uh, of 2017, early December. And uh, at the time, he was not moving our embassy there for a little while. They were going to find new plot of land and, and uh, uh, build a new embassy. But fast forward a few months, and in May of last year, of this year, uh, the U.S. Embassy was officially moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And Dr. Pipes also said that the United States should change its relations with UNRWA. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about that? Well, that, that there's obviously been a lot of developments starting in January of this year when the U.S. withheld $65 million of the first $125 million tranche of money that was supposed to go to UNRWA. Um, and, you know, that was, uh, according to President Trump's tweets, saying, you know, the Palestinians aren't willing to engage with us. They reject everything we're doing. Why are we giving this money? Uh, and others in the administration, including Nikki Haley, a U.N. ambassador from the United States, uh, you know, said that UNRWA's definition of a refugee needs to be reformed, the whole entity has problems, and until that happens, the U.S. shouldn't be giving any more money. Fast forward to uh, Labor Day weekend, and the administration uh, officially cut off all funds to UNRWA. Uh, No more money to UNRWA until they bring their uh, refugee definition uh, into some sort of a uh, uh, alignment with other um, definitions of, of refugees and uh, no more aid to this agency so long as uh, you know its corrupt uh, influences aren't changed. So that that's been a huge development and it continues. Those efforts are continuing to build to actually provide to the Palestinian people in a way that helps promote peace and coexistence as opposed to what UNRWA was doing, which perpetuates a victimhood mentality, uh, maintaining this. Um, you know, situation of incitement through the education system and uh, actually give them a better future. Yeah, so it seems like it's two for two so far with the with the capital and relations with UNRWA. Yeah. And if we move along, we say we see end benefits to the Palestinians unless they work toward a full permanent acceptance. And as it turns out, the State Department closed the PLO office in Washington. Dr. Pipes yeah. also said uh, Trump should not recognize a Palestinian state. Um, at least at the moment, and Trump has repeatedly refused to endorse it. So it seems that, um, whether intentional or not, the recommendations of Daniel Pipes and the Middle East Forum and the, in, and the Israel Victory Project seem to be coming to fruition. Uh, we have a question that yeah. came into the um, to the info mailbox, and it has to do with um, what you mentioned earlier about the speeches at the um, at the UNGA. And the question is, what is there to make of the recent contributions by countries like Germany, Sweden, and even Japan who are making up for the loss of funds? 
Is there anyone in those countries that the Israel Victory Project or MEF is working with to educate and prevent mistakes that have been made by the U.S. in the past? So can you tell us, is there so, is IVP doing anything abroad to educate those countries, or are there any plans to? So, yeah, so we've started to educate um, uh, folks in, in Europe, specifically in Germany. <clears throat> we also, through the Middle East Forum, as you, know, you can attest to, uh, you know, there's certain projects that the Middle East Forum funds uh, in Europe as well that, uh, um, that help with, with these efforts. But... You know, more importantly, and, and this is a good point, which is, you know, cutting off the money to UNRWA doesn't end the problem because others can step up. It's not like we're giving billions and billions of dollars a year to UNRWA. Uh, while obviously, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars is a lot of money, it's not, uh, it's not money that can't be replaced by others. So what's more important right now, in, in, uh, in my opinion, is changing the calculus on the ground in Israel that UNRWA should not be allowed to operate in there. Uh, UNRWA needs to be removed from the equation and, you know, privatizing the, the process so that U.S. aid can go directly to entities on the ground that promote values that, that we think uh, can actually promote a peaceful resolution uh, to the conflict. I think that's where we need to focus our attention on because, you know, whether Germany gives it, Japan gives it, if the Arab countries give it, uh, Money will will come in. Uh, we need to change the framework by which UNRWA is allowed to operate. Thank you, EJ, um, for the information, and thank you for all the work that, that you and IVP are doing um, to educate Americans and influence U.S. policy. We'll be back after this commercial break with Sam Westrop. The, the Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org, or check us out on Twitter, at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back. You are listening to MEF Century Radio, 860 WWDB. We have with us next this morning Sam Westrop. Sam is the director of the Middle East Forum's Islamist Watch Project, and he has been so since March of 2017 when MEF absorbed the counter-extremism unit of Americans for Peace and Tolerance. 
Prior to this, he was research director at APT, where he excelled at tracking Islamist activity across New England and ran Stand for Peace, a London-based counter-extremism organization monitoring Islamists throughout the U.K. Mr. Westrop is a senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute, and his writings have appeared in publications including the National Review, National Post, and The Hill. Sam, good to have you with us. How are you this morning? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Sure. So this morning, I was hoping that you could, where we could start at 30,000 feet, and for our listeners who um, are unfamiliar with Islamist Watch, or for Islamism in general, can you tell us what is the goal of Islamist Watch? What are you working to accomplish, and how does it differ from um, from others who have, let's say, differing views, who may be more extreme? Um, and what separates MEF's Islamist Watch project from them? Yes. Okay. As you say, let's start from uh, 30,000 feet. So first off, let's quickly define Islamism. When we say Islamism, we are not referring to Islam or Muslims as a whole. We are referring to a very particular strain of Islam, a strain of political Islam that seeks to impose a theocratic agenda uh, on, on, on Muslims and non-Muslims alike. That's what we mean when we say Islamism. Now, Islamist Watch uh, actually deals with a very specific type of Islamism, a strain of a strain, uh, if you were. Uh, lawful Islamism is our focus. So by that, we mean Islamists, extremists who use the languages and processes of, of, of democracy to further their goals. Because I think when people hear the word radical Islam, they often think Al-Qaeda or, or the Islamic State. But in fact, Islamism has many different variants, and many of them are lawful. They operate within Western countries' uh, rules and regulations, and they attempt to use our own ideas, our own uh, democratic ideas against us. So Islamist Watch looks at this infiltration in the U.S. It looks at the spread of Islamist movements who are trying to manipulate and exploit uh, Western ideas to promote a theocratic, dangerous agenda. Now, there are other Islamist uh, watch kind of groups. There are other organizations that look at this question. But Islamist watch is a little different because whereas other counter-Islamist groups simply refer to Islamism as a whole, we are particularly interested in the different strains of Islamism. So many of, of, of your listeners will have heard, of course, of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's a pretty prominent uh, Islamist movement, and a good example of a lawful Islamist movement when it comes to its activities in the West. It doesn't commit violent acts here in America. It runs for election. It uh, uh, tries to take control of schools, of seminaries, of, of community centers to exert influence to local level, to state level, and at a federal level. Uh, but the Muslim Brotherhood is far from the only Islamist movement. It is far from the only lawful Islamist movement out there. There are dozens of them. And uh, here in the U.S. is a particularly interesting place for lawful Islamism because the Muslim communities in America are so diverse uh, from all over the world. In fact, I think people think Muslim, they think the Middle East. But in truth, the American Muslims come from all over as a huge contingent from South Asia. Um, which also brings problematic Islamist movements like Jamaat-e-Islami or the hardline Deobandi sect from which the Taliban was born. And then there are sort of 
groups that straddle the line between Islam and Islamism, such as the Borelwis and so on. I, of course, I, I don't want to <laughs> just name <laughs> Islamist groups, but what I hope I'm trying to get across is the, the sheer diversity of Islamism in the U.S. and in the world, and that Islamist Watch is interested in understanding all these different types and delineating them into their separate categories and, and, and trying to explain and investigate their activities. Uh, no other group does this, uh, and it's only by understanding the threat that we can properly deal with it. Brilliant. And uh, I want to go back to something that, that, that you mentioned, and I think it's the crux of what your um the focus of your work is, and I want you to elaborate on it more for, for our listeners who don't quite understand, what is lawful Islamism? What would be bad about someone who's trying to achieve uh, something in a lawful way? Why would that be something that would be counter to American principles or American interests? That's a, an extremely good question and a thoroughly reasonable one because lawful activities appear to be thoroughly reasonable. So we're not, of course, saying that uh, a particular movement should be prevented from involving itself in the democratic process. Uh, what we're saying is that there are certain extremist organizations, extremist movements, who are using the freedoms of the West to advance their very undemocratic, anti-freedom agenda. Uh, now, this is dangerous because the end result is theocracy. Democracy is not an end goal for them. It is a means. Uh, democracy is a means by which they will institute a theocratic Islamist ideology. And in fact, uh, Turkey's tyrant, the, the Islamist president Erdogan, has said this, that democracy is just a train for getting to your ultimate de destination. <laughs> so this is what we're worried about here in the, in, in the U.S. We see these extremist movements who claim to speak on behalf of American Muslims and yet have no real mandate use our own processes, our own democratic ideas against us to further a highly extremist agenda. So what does this mean in practice? I'll give you a very brief uh, example. Uh, currently, and this is something that Islamist Watch is researching, uh, currently Islamist movements have monopolized uh, the uh, uh, control of private Islamic school teaching here in the U.S., so this means that, uh, uh, and a lot of these private Islamic schools benefit from taxpayer voucher systems uh, and uh, general uh, uh, puffery in the media and support in, in local political circles. Uh, what this means, however, is when you look at the curriculum of these schools, they're teaching these kids some really abhorrent ideas, some really extreme ideas. And uh, a generation of young Muslim children going through private Islamic schools who, may, who probably do not come from uh, Muslim families that believe in Islamist ideas or promote the Islamist agenda are nevertheless being taught the Islamist agenda in these private Islamic schools. It's not just a private problem. It's happening in public institutions as well. Islamists have uh, wormed their way into chaplaincy programs. So if you look at prisons across the country, too many of the prison chaplains, the imams, uh, appointed or allowed by the state to, to be chaplains in these prisons come from extreme Salafi or Islamist backgrounds and they're helping to radicalize uh, uh, prisoners, either converts to Islam or existing Muslims. So this is going on all over the place. None of this is illegal. Uh, it is certainly very dangerous. Well, so to summarize, so, so Islamist watch essentially, like you said, a strain of a strain, this, um, you know, this attempt for um, lawful Islamism within political Islam in the, in the United States, if it's not something that is being um, 
monitored or, or, or paid attention to, it definitely should be. Um, so what exactly is the answer? Um, it sounds like, um, you know, Islamist Watch is definitely in the right direction. It's definitely uh, distinguished itself from other groups that paint a broad brush against either Islam as a whole, or the religion as a whole, and receive um, widespread and justified condemnation for it. Um, so now that you've established yourself as in the right area, um, pursuing the right goals, what's the solution? How does um, Islamist Watch go about either achieving its goals, or what can you tell our listeners today that have demonstrated the effectiveness of, uh, of the work that you're doing? I mean, that's a good question. So if you look to Europe, where the problem of Islamism is much more advanced, uh, they're turning to censorship. That has always been the European way. Um, they, they've never understood that illiberalism is a cause of their problems, not a solution. Uh, here in the U.S., uh, uh, the, the principles of, 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 of free speech rights, the principles of free assembly, the principles of the Constitution uh, mean that we must deal with this problem in a democratic and, and, and free way. Now, what this means, of course, is that it's, it's very difficult, as McCarthy found out, as other people have found out, it's very difficult to defeat an ideology um, without turning to illiberal measures. But there's so much that can be done uh, without having to turn to European-style uh, censorship. Uh, mostly, I mean, the key thing is giving a voice to genuine, moderate Muslims who oppose Islamism. They have been pushed out by the Islamists, and they have been silenced by, by ignorant politicians who engage with the wrong kind of Muslim. So the, the chief thing that we can do and that everyone else can do, that you're listening abhorrent ideology of Muslims who oppose this abhorrent ideology of, of, of Islamism. The second thing is education. We can must educate the media and educate the politicians uh, about the true threat of Islamism. We must make sure that Islamism does not receive public monies. For at the moment, it really does receive far too much uh, public subsidy. Uh, we must make sure it's not invited into the White House, invited into the Capitol, invited into state legislatures and, 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 and state houses all, all across the country. It's a mix of education and, and activism that we need to uh, approach this, this, this problem. Uh, Islamist Watch is doing this. We're reaching out to legislators. We're working with people across the country. We're bringing attention to areas of Islamism that no one really knows about. Just last week, we uh, uh, published an article in collaboration with the Investigative Project on Terrorism on, a, on Jamaat Islami, a South Asian Islamist group that is extremely active here in the U.S. and whom politicians believe somehow speaks for American Muslims. In fact, it's a genocidal uh, organization that took part in the 1971 Bangladesh Liberation War where it helped murder millions of Bangladeshis. It's now running uh, a considerable proportion of the American Muslim community. So we, we, we wrote an article about this. We, we, we've taken that to legislators. We've taken that to the State Department, to the National Security Council, to uh, administration officials and the committee staff uh, in the House. There is a huge amount to be done. And a lot of it starts, with, as I said earlier, understanding the threat. Because not only do people not understand the threat, they don't even understand who's threatening them. They don't even understand the different groups that are actually at work here. Uh, and dispelling the idea that somehow Islam is this homogenous block uh, and, and proving instead that it's in fact this incredibly diverse array of competing ideas and groups and movements and sects is vital uh, to defeat Islamism. And that is exactly what Islamist Watch is doing right now. That's terrific. And... Um 
I really do love uh, reading your articles. And uh, one in particular I was hoping in, in the last couple minutes you could uh, summarize for our listeners. Uh, you wrote about the Charity and Security Network, and um, I love the uh, the title that you gave it, Useful Idiots or Advocates for Hate. Um, can you tell us what is, uh, for, for those who don't know, um, we have about two minutes, what is the Charity and Security Network, and what is um, Islamist Watch's um, interest um, with them and their activities? Yeah, so the Charity and Security Network claims to be a legal rights group that speaks on behalf of Muslim charities that it claims are... Uh, have, have become a victim to a, an overburdening counter-terror regulation. However, they do not speak on behalf of innocent Muslim charities caught up in, in government bureaucracy. Instead, they advocate on behalf of charities that have a long history of involvement in terror finance and extremism. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that people legitimize Islamists as representatives of Muslims. The Charity and Security Network does exactly this. It tries to portray extremists as victims, uh, and that's hugely problematic. Uh, and our article looked at this. It looked at their long history of ties to extremist organizations. And, uh, uh, and I'm afraid they're just one of many, many groups that do this sort of thing. Uh, and Islamist Watch, as well as writing about Islamism, writes about the useful idiots who enable them. That's terrific. And, uh, and we're very appreciative of the work that you do and the very detailed nature and uh, the careful effort that it takes to separate the good from the bad. So thank you, Sam, for joining us today. You heard uh, Islamist Watch um, very active in its efforts to educate um, the public and legislators to to tackle Islamism by empowering moderate Muslims. You can support Sam's work and the work of the Middle East Forum by donating on our website, www.meforum.org. After this commercial break, we will hear from Winfield Myers, director of the Forum's Campus Watch Project. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio. This is Matt Bennett, guest hosting for Greg Roman, and we are on 860 AM WWDB. 
Next up, we have Winfield Myers, the director of the Middle East Forum's Campus Watch. Campus Watch reviews and critiques Middle East studies in North American universities, and Wynn has been serving as its director uh, for quite some time. He previously taught world history and other topics at the University of Michigan, the University of Georgia, Tulane, and Xavier University of Louisiana. He was previously managing editor of the American Enterprise Magazine and CEO of Democracy Project, Inc., which he co-founded. Mr. Myers has served as senior editor and communications director at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and is principal author and editor of A College Guide, Choosing the Right College. Wynn, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you, Matt. It's great to be there. I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. Good to have you with us. Um, if you're watching uh, what's going on on American college campuses today, um, and you are the average um, American, um, should you be disturbed? Should you be happy? Should you be concerned? Uh, what is Campus Watch doing, and what is the general attitude among um, among readers and supporters about um, the attitude and the environment on our college campuses today? I think you should be very disturbed by what you find, just particularly in the humanities and the social sciences across the board. But in our corner of the woods, in Middle East studies, Islamic studies, uh, it's particularly uh, egregious because <clears throat> one of the things we've found most recently in the past couple of years has been an increase among faculty members and research appointments at, at major universities, not simply of apologists for Islamism, of the type that uh, Sam was just speaking of, but actual Islamists themselves, people who are uh, proselytizing for radical versions of Islam, uh, people who um, don't simply recommend policy uh, for America, uh, both domestic and foreign, that might favor Islamists, but who who are actively Islamists themselves. Um, A couple of examples may uh, suffice to to, uh, show how this works. At Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., uh, in 2005, Prince Awalid bin Talal, the rich Saudi prince everybody's heard of, uh, gave $25 million to found a, uh, the center for, now named for him, a Muslim Christian Understanding. There's no understanding uh, in this. It's not about understanding uh, Christians in the Middle East or here. It's really a propaganda arm for Wahhabi Islam, the kind practiced in in Saudi Arabia, and for Islamists uh, across the board, centered straight in the middle of the nation's capital. And a couple of appointments they've made over the last few years illustrate this. Uh, One, which is very troubling, and and we're going to call a great deal of attention to this, is of a man named Ibrahim Kalin. He is a a senior fellow at the Abilid Center for uh, for, um, Muslim Christian Understanding. He also even though he is an American-educated Turk, uh, and he has a Ph.D. from George Washington University in Islamic Studies, he is Turkish President Erdogan's chief spokesman and chief advisor. And uh, yet, in spite of working uh, hand-in-glove every day with this authoritarian uh, Turkish president, uh, an overt Islamist, a man who is re-Islamizing Turkey and doing away with the reforms, of Ataturk from decades and decades ago, um, Georgetown provides him an academic slot. And most recently, uh, Kalin, just last week, made a threat to kidnap opponents of the Turkish regime regardless of where they are. He said, rest assured they will feel 
Turkey breathing down their neck, whether it be in the U.S. or some other country. He's speaking here of supporters of Fethullah Gulen, uh, uh, Erdogan's former ally, now his opponent, who is living in central Pennsylvania. So here you have uh, an academic trained in American universities uh, working hand-in-glove with a regime that has arrested thousands and thousands of professors, uh, K-12 educators, civil servants, police, soldiers, you name it, and thrown them all into jail to the point they're even having to build more prisons in Turkey now to hold all of the political prisoners that they're, they're rounding up constantly uh, after the failed coup attempt in 2016. And yet Georgetown happily gives him a post. This is a part of an effort to legitimize people like this, to legitimize this brand of uh, Islamism. Uh, and, it's, and it's reprehensible uh, that you have a, an academic working for them and, uh, uh, you know, coddling up to this kind of, of dictator. Um, another is a man named Arsalan Iftikhar. Iftikhar is a fellow at the Bridge Initiative, which is part of the Albulese Center there at Georgetown. And Iftikhar is the former national legal director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, uh, which, of course, is an Islamist organization. It is not a civil rights organization, as so many in the media characterize it. And this allows through the Saudi money that was funded to Georgetown in 2005, what you see happening is um, it opens avenues for the appointment of Islamists like this, and uh, their effort is to legitimize Islamism. In the case, for example, of the Bridge Initiative, um, nice name, Bridge Initiative, who would be against building a bridge to reach out to the other side for ecumenism, for better relations? But the bridge runs only one way there at Georgetown, and that initiative exists to promote the myth that Islamophobia is rampant in the United States, um, that uh, Muslims are everywhere and at all times uh, victims, and it's really a, a term used to shut down debate, not to advance debate. So calling someone an Islamophobe is meant as an epithet. It's meant as a curse almost, uh, so that the person so named <clears throat> will hopefully, in, in their eyes, cease debating, and uh, this is a way of silencing critics of Islamism. And so it's, it's emanating right in the heart of uh, the nation's capital. Uh, Prince Abeli chose well when he chose Georgetown as a place for uh, you know, to endow uh, with his uh, millions and millions of dollars. Wow, that's really disturbing. And for our listeners who, have, uh, who may have uh, children or um, relatives attending Georgetown, look out. Um, so if you're an average parent, uh, we have uh, about three minutes uh, to go here. Uh, if you're an average parent out there and you have um, a son or a daughter or um, uh, a friend who is uh, on an American college campus and they are either studying uh, um, Middle East history or uh, a related field, um, Campus Watch, if I'm not mistaken, keeps a list of professors that should be um, either um, feared or on the lookout or avoided, um, and ones who are recommended. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what um, our listeners can find on Campus Watch's website? Sure, I think that's a great idea. That they should avail themselves of the resources that we have at, at our website. We have a list of recommended professors, uh, quite a long list. We're adding to it and amending it constantly. Um, this doesn't mean that we agree with everything they say or write. What it does mean is that they are straight shooters, they're honest in their scholarship, and if you see one on your campus, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend them. For 
the other list you mentioned, uh, professors to avoid, speaks for itself. These are some of the worst professors in America. Uh, we can't possibly list them all. We would probably run out of uh, server space if we started doing this. But it's a, it's a means of, of warning students away from some of the most politicized, most propagandistic professors who indoctrinate rather than educate. But there are other sources there I would recommend if you want to find out about a professor, search him on our website. We have a search feature and see if he is in our archives and look at the various uh, articles that you find there. And or email us. Anyway, uh, and and uh, you can email me if you want. Admires at emmyforum.org, and I'll be happy to try to uh, answer a question for you if you have one. Yeah, and if you're looking for examples of the types of uh, professors that you might want to be on the lookout for, look no further than the recent headline of uh, the professor who denied a recommendation letter to his student because she oh. wanted to study in Israel, and he let his opinions affect his decision to recommend her for that program, but said. He was happy to recommend her for another program that was not in Israel. Yeah. So thank you, Win, for right, maintaining uh, for maintaining this uh, comprehensive resource um, uh, for the public. Um, and if you're a parent out there, definitely make use of it at campus-watch.org. So, Win, thanks again for uh, for joining us uh, today, and keep up the good work. You bet, Matt. Thank you. So we're going to wrap up the show today, and for our listeners out there who have already made their uh, annual contribution, we are very grateful for your support. If you're a new listener or you're just getting acquainted with the work that the Middle East Forum does, uh, we are a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organizations, and your gifts are tax-deductible. So please, um, if you choose to support our work, go to www.meforum.org and click on the Donate button. I'm Matthew Bennett, and thank you today for listening to MEF Century Radio.